can we start recording? Yeah. I'm sure. Because state nurses came here. in and they said, we have, we don't want to interfere with your flow in any way. We, we, we don't want to interfere at all. But yet they're taking over the clinic unannounced on a busy clinic day. And we're very behind because my head nurse has to uh, go through the clinic with them. Mm -hmm. And so if they say that they're not affecting the flow, it's, it's ridiculous. My name is Allison Case. I'm a family doctor and an abortion provider, and over the next few months, I'll be traveling across the country talking with abortion providers and advocates about restrictions in their states and what they think will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the upcoming Supreme Court session. I hope this podcast will serve as a jumping off point for new advocates who want to get involved with the fight for reproductive justice, including abortion access. Access to abortion is a fundamental human right. Thanks for joining me as we learn more about how we can preserve this right together. Hello, for the love of our listeners. Thanks so much for being here today. In this episode, we're going to focus on Arizona and the restrictions to abortion access in that state, as well as the opportunities for advocacy there. Before we get started, I did want to just give a quick update on my end. As you have heard, all of the previous episodes have been recorded in the scamp, so where I was living for the months that I was running around and interviewing folks for this podcast. The scamp is now happily parked in her at least two-year home in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I'll be for the next two years, completing a fellowship in maternal and child health with the University of New Mexico. It's taken longer than I thought to put these episodes together, but I have a ton of material left to go, and I'm eager to continue working on this project from my new home in Albuquerque to bring you episodes about all the states that I visited and hopefully inspire new advocates in those states to get out and work for abortion access because we need every single voice in this fight. So I hope you've enjoyed the episode so far, and I'm going to work over the next couple months to bring you the remaining episodes that I do have. You can continue to follow the episodes as they're released on my Instagram at For the Love of Row Podcast, and I'll be posting photos and updates there as well. So let's get back to Arizona. First, I want to thank Dr. Colin Ray, who helped edit this episode. Thank you so much for your help. Next, I want to begin by acknowledging the indigenous lands that exist in Arizona. There are many, and I won't be able to acknowledge all of them in this episode. However, I will post a link to the Intertribal Council website where you can find all 21 tribal nations that exist in Arizona. Some of the tribal homelands that exist in the state include the Navajo Nation, the Hopi Tribe, the Pueblo of Zuni, the Havasupai Tribe, and the Apache Tribe. And again, you can check out that link in the show notes for the Intertribal Council to see the remainder of the nations that I am not able to cover today. If you've listened to previous episodes, you know that this is an important part of the show for me. I think it's important to acknowledge the indigenous lands that exist in the states that I visited. If you want to learn more about indigenous communities and access to abortion, please check out my separate episode in which I spoke with the leadership of Indigenous Women Rising. They're a fantastic group, and there's lots to learn in that episode about access for indigenous communities. Now let's go back to the very beginning of this episode. The clip that you heard at the beginning was from Dr. Gabrielle Goodrick. She is a family practice physician and abortion provider in Phoenix, Arizona. And something kind of wild happened the day I was supposed to interview her in Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, hi. Hi, good morning. No, hi, hi. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Just Dr. Great. Good to meet you. Yeah. I understand this is a little bit unusual. Right. 
I got a phone call from Dr. Goodrick before I was scheduled to meet with her in her clinic that there was going to be a surprise visit from the health department on that day. These surprise state inspections happen every year, and as you heard at the very beginning of this episode, they often disrupt the flow of patient care. Not only that, but these inspections are often riddled with irrelevant observations by the inspectors that have nothing to do with patient safety. The inspections are often guided by something called trap laws, which you may have heard about if you're involved in abortion advocacy. These laws are very clever ways for anti-abortion advocates across the country to limit access to abortion by making it more difficult for clinics to stay open and more difficult for new clinics to open at all. TRAP stands for Targeted Restrictions on Abortion Providers. These laws are often paraded by anti-abortion advocates as laws that are meant to protect the health of patients, when really they're just irrelevant burdens upon the clinics and the providers themselves. TRAP laws include things like building requirements, so things like ensuring that the halls are a certain size, requiring clinics to have a certain size sink in place. Things like that that have nothing to do with patient safety but are burdensome requirements for the clinics and the providers. Trap laws also include things like hospital admitting privileges, which, if you are keeping up with current events, are involved in the Supreme Court case June Medical Services versus Gee. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in an episode coming up soon where I did talk with that clinic in Louisiana. But suffice it to say that trap laws are prevalent, they're across the country, and they're especially bad in Arizona. Just how bad they are was completely evident to me during the health inspection in which I was present. I could not believe the extent to which the inspectors were pushing laws that have no impact on patient care. It was completely out of bounds with my experience and what I've seen of health clinic inspections. As a family doctor, I work in a clinic that's inspected by the health department. Usually they look into things that are important for patient safety, making sure our medications aren't expired, making sure our waste is disposed of properly, making sure our sharps containers aren't overflowing. Things like that that are important for patient care. I asked one of the inspectors how the inspection of an abortion clinic differs from that of, say, a family practice clinic. And he was pretty upfront with me about how different they are. You guys do all kinds of clinic inspections? Oh, yes. Okay. We do. How is this compared to, like, your other inspections of, like, a family medicine clinic? What do you say? Totally different. Okay. Abortion clinics? No, she's oh. talking about like a doctor's office. Yeah, I just wondered oh. how different it was. Not, not, I mean, a lot of it's the same, uh-huh. but just different rules for different facilities. Gotcha. They have yeah. all these rules. You guys have a special rule book. Sure. Some laws that regulate physicians who perform abortion services may seem small, but are actually insidious ways to slowly chip away at that provider and to decrease access by forcing them to close a clinic. I would say that one of those laws in Arizona is a law requiring providers to post in each room and other places in the clinic a regulation that states that patients should know their right not to be coerced into having an abortion. Now, I should preface this by saying that coercion is a real thing, and physicians, especially those who perform abortions, are very cognizant of this and very sensitive to it. Discussing the possibility of coercion and ruling it out is always a part of the counseling around abortion. So the sign that this state mandates is kind of unnecessary and is really just another regulation that physicians have to keep up with. 
What's even more insidious about regulations like this is that when inspectors come into the clinic, they can really put their own spin and biases into their inspection when discussing these rules. Take, for example, the following exchange between one of the inspectors and a couple of the staff at the clinic regarding the size of one of these coercion signs in the patient room. We got the big sign, let's increase our fluids, we'll shut the ADB compliance and don't be forced. It has to be in a conspicuous place, unreadable, and that's. We can make it bigger, we can do it on an eight half. We know we just will do what's required. Yeah. And if that doesn't meet the requirement, that's to me, it's. It's not as big as your abortion is now. We we crazy hot outside. We we don't be cool. Yeah, we do have two or three of them in the lobby. It's required in every room of the clinic, the and we have them all over. I don't want the patients to feel uncomfortable by that sign. Ultimately, the health inspectors report back to the state, and the state will send a report to the clinic stating whether or not there has been a violation. The size of the sign, for instance, would not be an official violation. But clinics might not know that, and they might go ahead and feel like they have to make changes to their clinic in order to remain open. This puts the doctors in a really tough spot. You heard Dr. Goodrick there talking about how she's concerned that her patients will feel uncomfortable if that coercion sign is made bigger. Coercion is already discussed thoroughly with patients. They don't need more signs that further shame them about a procedure that, though very common, is extremely stigmatized in our society. Making the sign super prevalent may suggest to patients that the only reason they could possibly choose for having an abortion is because they're being coerced into that decision, when really this is normal and a decision that is often the best for people for a variety of reasons. It's also worth noting that while this discussion is going on about the size of the sign, the appropriateness of the size of the sign, patients are kept waiting, the clinic is disrupted, the flow is disrupted. This is just not normal. This is not how a normal clinic inspection goes. It's disruptive and it's completely outside of what the inspection should be for, which is to keep patients safe. The other thing that's very frustrating about these regulations is that they can change at the drop of a hat. Dr. Goodrick told me more about this when I was at the clinic. Apologies in advance for the background noise in this recording. I was recording in a room where some of the inspection was actively taking place. Every year they go through all the guidelines for clinics and abortion clinics and they just change everything. They just change it up. So you have to read it with the fine tooth comb every year to see what's going on. One would think that if these regulations are actually supposed to keep patients safe, that they would want to keep the doctors up to date with the regulations. But the point is that they are not put in place to protect patients. They're put in place to trap providers and to make it look like clinics are unsafe. One clue that these regulations are not meant to protect patients is that many of them and many of the laws restricting abortion access in general in Arizona have been authored by the same conservative group each year called the Center for Arizona Policy. The Center for Arizona Policy is led by an anti-abortion advocate whose name I heard a lot during my time in Arizona. So Kathy Harrod. Um, Kathy Harrod. Kathy Harrod um, yeah. runs the yeah. Center oh, for Arizona Policy. I've heard Policy. about her. Yeah. So Kathy Harrod, real winner. She's the leader of the Center for Arizona Policy and an unabashed anti-abortion advocate. 
According to our website, she's played leading roles in defeating things like Proposition 205, which would have uh, made recreational marijuana legal. She led the Yes for Marriage Coalition that spearheaded the successful passage of Proposition 102 to define marriage in the Arizona Constitution as only the union of one man and one woman. And she has led many, many efforts to pass significant anti-abortion legislation. According to my interviews with multiple sources in Arizona, she has unprecedented access to legislators that an unelected person should not have, like, for instance, access to the actual Capitol building through a separate entrance and access to meetings that are generally just limited to state legislators. There's one in every state, but usually not with such unprecedented access for an unelected person. Kathy and her anti-abortion organization have a lot of influence. And it's no surprise with such a strong anti-abortion movement across the state that there are a lot of restrictions to abortion access. I talked with Taylor Tucker of Planned Parenthood to find out more about the restrictions that patients face in Arizona. And what kind of restrictions do you see patients facing when they're looking to access services here? So, <laughs> this is Got the fun list. laundry list. <laughs> We've had some good success in, in holding off uh, a lot of things and specifically have relied on Roe and, and that to protect ourselves from the fact that like we do have a 20-week ban that is on the books. It is not enforceable due to Roe currently. We are allowed to do care up to 24 weeks. We don't personally do it at Planned Parenthood. We do up to 17 weeks, so then you're looking at going to independent provider and we refer out. We have a 24-hour rating period, so that's a two-trip requirement that's required for both medication and surgical as well, or in clinic. And we have ultrasound. Telemedicine is completely and utterly banned for our, you know, for abortion care. It's allowed for a ton of other services that are available. You must have an informed consent script. It must be delivered by an MD, so no nurse practitioners or registered nurses can participate in the provision of abortion care, so they can't dispense your um, your medication abortion. They cannot do that, so that is really what closed down a lot of our facilities. Um, we used to have satellite facilities in Prescott and okay. Yuma, and these small facilities that were mainly nurse practitioner run where we were able to do a lot of me medication abortion care, and after that law came into effect in 2011, 2010, that's when we started to see that. We must comply with ambulatory surgical centers architecturally as interpreted by each city that we're in to be able to keep our license. We have admitting privileges. Our, our doctors or providers for surgical need to have, like, have an admitting privilege with a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic. That also must be submitted on an annual basis, along with our, our our licensing. And is that one? Sorry, is that the one that's that Planned Parenthood is challenging currently? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we are challenging that. We're challenging the telemedicine ban, the nurse practitioner piece, and the twenty four hour waiting. Great. Based on Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstead. Mm -hmm. But as we're seeing right now with this Louisiana case, I was just speaking to quite a few reporters because they started calling us because right. that starts to trouble that lawsuit if we do see movement over there, any indication of the hollowing out of Roe. And then we do have reporting. So we have reporting now. 2018 is when we passed SB 1394. So a provider must ask the patient, what are the reasons 
why they are seeking an abortion. They are able to decline or answer like no answer, but they are asked that question and our providers are required to send back reporting on that. Really? Yes. So like, wow. And it includes information, of course, like age, race, you know, highest level of education, all of that sort of stuff goes to ADHS. But yeah, if it's rape or incest, if it's financial instability, it goes to ADHS. We do not know what they aim to do with that data. We don't know who holds it or or what that's really looking for. Um, So yeah, that's there. Of course, we have parental consent laws for minor access. So you either have that or have to get judicial bypass. State employees can't charitably give to us. And same thing, like same thing with um, Medicaid or anything like that. The state can't directly contract with us as an abortion um, provider. And of course, we have a fetal tissue ban, <laughs> a partial birth abortion ban, um, and then race yeah. and sex selection ban from 2011. And also we have a full ban on uh, insurance coverage for abortion here. So even if you have private insurance, if you're in Arizona, you cannot um, do that. That's of 2015. So I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. So, just, just a couple. So yeah, that is quite the list. And Taylor actually did have a literal list in her hand of restrictions that they keep on hand at Planned Parenthood because you can't keep track of all this stuff. It's just too much. One of the things that Taylor said really caught my ear. It reminded me a lot of my more recent experience at the time in Wyoming. Here in Arizona, too, like it was very much a libertarian bent. It was very much like, hey, we do not want government involved in anything. Um, And then really it did switch in the mid 2000s. And that was also due to the makeup. You know, we had Governor Janet Napolitano and then went to work for the Obama administration. And once that the governor's seat switched over to a Republican, the all these laws that had been easily vetoed before just swept. And so between, you know, 2010 and I would say like, yeah, 2012 was where the bulk of these restrictions ended up happening. And now we get like the piecemeal little kind of insidious stuff that slowly, slowly, you know, does all of this. Right. So if you listened at all to my episode on Wyoming, some of that might sound familiar. A rural libertarian state slowly being hijacked by more and more evangelical policies restricting abortion access, among other things. If you listen to the episode on Wyoming, you'll learn more. But right now, Wyoming remains somewhat more libertarian, I'd say, with less restrictive policies than Arizona. But could it turn, you know, the way that Arizona has? Possibly. The similarities between Wyoming and Arizona don't end at this libertarian vein. We heard in that episode about Wyoming that they are trying to pass a more and more invasive reporting process. And as we heard earlier in this episode, they're trying to do the same thing in Arizona. And I talked in that episode about how in states like Missouri, they have put in even more invasive policies to do things like tracking women's periods. Suffice it to say that this information is not needed by the government. It's not about patient safety. It's about the anti-abortion movement trying to collect more information to further persecute abortion providers and to further limit access. The other way in which Arizona is similar to Wyoming is that they're both very rural, and this ends up being a huge barrier to care for patients. I talked with Eloisa Lopez, 
the chair of the Arizona Abortion Fund, one of the abortion funds in Arizona, about where the clinics are located in Arizona and the struggles that people face trying to get to those clinics and accessing care. And with restrictions, we've had a lot of clinic closures. So now we just have six in Maricopa County. All of them are housed in Phoenix. And then we have one Planned Parenthood in Tucson, and then one smaller Planned Parenthood in Flagstaff. And that is it. That is like how our state is set up. So Tucson and Flagstaff only do procedures up until 15, 15 weeks, 14 to 15 weeks. And they do not even provide procedure opportunities every day. I recently learned Flagstaff does procedures one day a week, then the rest is like STI testing and preventative care and things like that. But, and then Tucson is three days a week. So we run into these issues where, you know, you might live in those areas, but trying to get in on time before you can't, like before you can no longer visit that clinic is really difficult. And we've had callers who unfortunately had to buy staff at the clinic, like have their appointments constantly rescheduled and pushed back because of, you know, lack of capacity. And then they were no longer able to even attend their appointments and they had to travel. So that right there is a big issue that we're facing. We also have telemedicine down here for abortion. So you have the rural communities that really struggle to even just make it to Phoenix for a consultation. You have communities where maybe they don't have adequate transportation. They don't have somebody they can trust as a companion to travel with them. They're struggling financially, can't afford gas, all these kind of other financial problem stems can pop up when virtual consultation and have medication delivered to them. So basically, if you live outside of the Maricopa County area, which is where Phoenix is located, it can be really hard to get to your appointments and to access care. Eloisa brought up a couple of really important points that I also heard from Taylor Tucker, the advocate I spoke with from Planned Parenthood. You heard about the restriction on telemedicine and how that has impacted access. So because of the 24-hour waiting period, folks who are seeking abortion care have to be seen 24 hours before their procedure for the mandated counseling, which has to be delivered in person by a physician. In states that do not have telemedicine bans, a patient can receive that counseling for their abortion remotely. This saves patients a lot of time, money, and hassle. As it is right now in Arizona, if you live far away from, say, Maricopa County, you may have to travel hours and hours just for your counseling appointment, only to turn around again the next day and do the same thing in order to get to your appointment for the actual abortion procedure. And this is a huge barrier for patients. You heard from Eloisa, people have to get time off work, they have to arrange for childcare, and oftentimes patients will miss appointments because of these barriers, resulting in delayed care, continuing to push back the procedure until at some point they may not be able to get an abortion in the state because they are too far along in gestational age. There are even more barriers if you happen to be a person who is undocumented in Arizona. 
Yeah. So, you know, of course we're a border state. So that means that often a lot of people, people that originally were also on this land, um, um, have always crossed back and forth and, and have found their homes here. And so we see, you know, quite a bit of people or a larger outsized population that needs access to care. And we're one of the few places that they can come and know that, you know, initially when you come in and when you're filling out our patient information, information form and when you're doing that that documentation is not required for you to be able to get care then the hard part comes in here which is like you think of all these restrictions and then as somebody that's you know a citizen and when they do get pulled over you know when it was SB 1070 time can say that I have valid ID you start to think about people trying to travel you know from southern Arizona to Phoenix to be able to get their care and that all becomes really really hard and also having less financial resources and support so that's the hard part about that piece. And so most likely those people can be pushed into, you know, underground situations, um, clandestine care. And that can be, you know, also, you know, something that incurs, you know, a certain amount of risk. So yeah, I I would say that that's kind of just a a different dimension. It takes all of this and that, um, or, you know, delaying care and having to go back and forth for that. So yeah, but we have taken a couple, ACLU has helped connect us with a couple of those dough cases that we could take care of them here. So it's just the extra fear, I think, of being criminalized in trying to access this care. There are a couple things that Taylor mentioned that I want to talk about a little further. She mentioned Jane Doe cases. She's referring there to cases of undocumented minors who are being held in U.S. detention facilities who request abortions. Just for some background on this issue, in October of 2017, a pregnant teen in U.S. custody referred to as Jane Doe sued in order to obtain an abortion. A district judge entered a preliminary injunction prohibiting the government from blocking abortion access for teens like Jane Doe. Then in June of 2018, a federal appeals court ruled that the federal government could not prevent these minors from accessing abortion. Planned Parenthood, with the help of the ACLU, as mentioned by Taylor, has been able to help some of these patients access care in Arizona. This ruling affected not just patients in Arizona, but patients in all the border states where there are detention facilities. In general, as you heard, it's very difficult to access care if you're undocumented. The fear of being discovered and deported augments all of the barriers that we already discussed. Tucson is in southern Arizona and is one of the closest places for folks coming from across the border to access care. Besides the difficulties of obtaining transportation in general, which we already talked about, there are customs and border protection checkpoints that will one have to cross to get to Tucson from the border or from anywhere south of Tucson. Now, I went through some similar checkpoints when I was coming through southwestern Arizona. As a white woman and a U.S. citizen, I'm privileged to experience these checkpoints as pretty much a minor inconvenience. I stopped my car. I was asked if I was a U.S. citizen, and when I said yes, they waved me along. But these are major sources of fear for someone who is undocumented. If someone is stopped at one of these checkpoints and they can't produce identification, they could face serious consequences, arrest, or deportation. People seeking abortion are often desperate enough to take these risks. 
but you could see how this would be a major barrier to care. Now, you also heard Taylor mention SB 1070. This was a law in Arizona that was passed in 2010 that required police officers to demand the papers of people suspected of being in the country illegally based on, quote, reasonable suspicion, end quote. As you might suspect, this led to racial profiling and was called out on the national stage. The law centered around four provisions. It allowed police to ask for immigration papers of a person stopped for other reasons besides immigration violations or to arrest a person without a warrant if they believe they committed a deportable offense. It also made it a state crime for illegal immigrants to fail to carry registration papers and for people who were undocumented to solicit work. There were multiple lawsuits brought against this law, and the Supreme Court actually blocked blocked three provisions of law in 2012, which significantly decreased its power. But the provision that allows officers to ask for immigration papers, even if a person is stopped for something unrelated to their immigration status, remains in place. And even if parts of the law have been ruled unconstitutional, the law has served its purpose and has created an extreme environment of fear for people who are undocumented. There are currently efforts in the Arizona State House to roll back the law completely, but these have been introduced in the past and have not made it out of committee. We'll have to see how things go this session in Arizona. So basically, organizations working for abortion access in border states have to deal with this added layer of complication when they are helping patients who are undocumented seek abortion access. The fear of persecution absolutely prevents people from seeking abortion care. I'll post some resources in the show notes if you want to take a deeper dive into this issue. There's definitely a lot to cover, and I am definitely not an expert on immigration and access, so definitely check out those articles. Another population that has difficulty accessing abortion care is the indigenous community. There are several reservations and indigenous communities within Arizona, and this population faces a unique set of barriers. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this episode talking about those barriers because I did spend a whole episode speaking with leaders of the organization Indigenous Women Rising about access to abortion care within Indigenous communities. And I would refer you to that episode for a deeper dive on this issue. It's really important and there are definitely major barriers to care that Indigenous communities face across the country. I want to shift gears now to a conversation that I had with Dr. Goodrick about providers in Arizona. One thing that lawmakers don't understand is the complexity of obstetrics care in general, and I would include within that abortion care. There are a million reasons why a person might seek an abortion, and there are many, many reasons that a wanted pregnancy may unfortunately end in termination or end in miscarriage or stillbirth. There are also many reasons that carrying a pregnancy to term may be very dangerous for a person. This is extremely complex and very complicated, and lawmakers often paint a broad brush across pregnancy in general and have no thought about the complexity of these decisions. I wanted to highlight here a case that Dr. Goodrick told me about, a case that she was involved in that made me really frustrated and angry and I think highlights a couple of issues within abortion care that are extremely important. Number one, there are major problems with having people who are not involved in healthcare making laws about health care. So people who are not involved in pregnancy and who do not understand the complexities of pregnancy and taking care of pregnant people and them then going ahead and making laws about those persons' lives. And then number two, the shortage of abortion providers and the shortage of training for abortion providers and shortage of support for those providers. I'll let Dr. Goodrick tell her full story here. I do just want to make sure people know that this story does involve rape. So if that is a trigger for you, 
consider skipping this section and skipping forward to a later part of the podcast. But I had a case on Friday that really shook us all to our core um, in terms of how how far and how low our healthcare has gone mm. in this state and probably around the country. So this patient presented on Friday, 37 years old, disabled, history of stroke, heart attacks. She has some impairment cognitively. She's morbidly obese. She has fibromyalgia. She's on literally a page of medications, mm. like 20 medications. She's had stents placed. She has just had, she's a sick, sick lady. She mm -hmm. has a lot of medical conditions. She's raped by her cousin's ex-husband. She asked for an abortion at the hospital because of her risks. She should probably have it done in a hospital, right? Mm -hmm. And she was raped. So Medicaid should cover it. Mm -hmm. They actually physically kicked her out of the office and told her that she should look it up herself where she should go, but they would not help her. And this is a secular hospital. A residency program. Jeez. They kicked her out. She said they almost called the cops on her. She made such a scene and she was very upset. And this was two months ago. Mm -hmm. She was about five weeks pregnant. And so she told us this whole story. And then, so she left there. She called her family doctor who said, fine, go to this doctor at Dignity Health, which is the Catholic hospital. Why? There's only two systems. There's oh, only the hospital. Okay, there's only it. two systems, and oh, she thinks man. she needs a hospital abortion because yeah. no one else will do it. So she goes there, and they're like, "Oh, of course we'll help you." Oh, wait, we're Catholic hospital. We can't do it. Mm -hmm. And so she referred her to me. So then she walks in my door. She's 13 weeks pregnant, no money, mm -hmm. a rape victim, huge health risks. Oh, she has airway issues, you know, like high risk patient. And I'm going to turn her away. I mean, no, but in any other state, she'd be done in the hospital. Right. Right. And if something happens, I'm to blame. But why aren't these other doctors taking care of her? I mean, she was not only raped, but she has like a lot of medical conditions that she can't have a baby. She has like a low ejection right. fraction. She has heart issues. She's disabled from strokes. This is a sick, she's, you know, yeah. she's a really sweet lady, but I ended up trying to reach her cardiologist to get a cardiac clearance, but I couldn't get in touch with him in time. And so by the time she came back on Monday, you know, I was like, well, we're doing this. So we did it and it went off fine. Everything went fine. Mm -hmm. She did great. And the whole procedure, she just screamed. I hate you. I, she was talking about the man who impregnated her and she was just like crying and screaming how much she hated him and how he did this to her. It was horrifying. But two months she spent trying to get in for an abortion and the state, the other, and, and other doctors turned her away. They're so inhumane. I mean, the whole thing is just, just really disturbing to me how far our profession has sunk. I share the story from Dr. Goodrick because I think it's a tragic example of the complexities of seeking abortion care. You have state laws that are put into place by people who don't understand the complexity of pregnancy or abortion care. You have providers who consciously 
will not provide this care, which I think is more rare than the provider who is simply not trained to provide that care. And that seems to be a huge issue. I think across the country, we're facing a shortage of abortion providers, and part of that is because there aren't enough training opportunities. Clearly, abortion access in Arizona is difficult. There are lots of barriers in place, but the encouraging thing is that advocates in Arizona are not giving up, and they're turning more and more to the lens of reproductive justice for their activism. This is Eloisa from the Arizona Abortion Fund. The activist community here is really thriving, so it's been exciting to see a lot of groups now turn to the mindset of reproductive justice framework, or they're at least beginning to understand and address it with their base and supporters. So when I first really got involved with this work, no one felt connected, really. Like, there were so many groups. We were all doing great work, but the connections were lacking. And I think this past year, we've seen a lot of intermingling from the different organizations. And it's mainly, you know, you have the, the brown and black organizations and then the, the very white-led organizations. So we're now seeing more of that mix and mingle, which has been really exciting. And I think our future here is going to be very strong with the activism community here. I do feel that we will make some significant changes in our states. That's super exciting. There's just a really great momentum and energy happening here. It's very exciting to hear that the activist community in Arizona is gearing up to make some big changes in the coming years. Having said that, as we are all aware, Roe, the current law of the land, is in real danger of being further gutted or even overturned in upcoming Supreme Court sessions. I talked with Dr. Goodrick about what she plans to do if this were to happen in the future and what she thinks a post-Roe world will look like. Right. So that's like the big question. What's my contingency plan? So... I have applied for my medical license in Nevada, which is a fairly blue state, has very little restrictions. And so my plan would be to set up a clinic probably in Las Vegas and then do most of the work for the Arizonans, like in my office here, pre-op and all that stuff, and then get them to Nevada to do the procedure or take the pill and then come back. So I would hopefully be able to rent a space up there and, and do it. So that's my contingency plan. I mean, it's not going to stop it from being in demand. There's going to be the same number of people that need the service. It's just to help them. I mean, it won't be like a travel agency, kind of a medical travel to Nevada, which is almost the closest state and has liberal laws and stuff like that and a big airport. So there's like, you know, a hundred flights from Phoenix to Vegas. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's my plan. So I'm going to hopefully get that shortly. And that'll be my contingency plan. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I would have to do if it ever came to that. Mm -hmm. But I think there also is a lot of care that would be needed for the women that would be doing self-abortions if it became illegal. And so I think the clinic would also turn into a miscarriage management code word Mm -hmm. for helping women navigate self-abortions because they're still going to need follow-up care and there might be a big stigma and OB-GYNs and ERs might be afraid that they would get in trouble seeing these women that are doing self-abortions, but there's going to be failures from those and there's going to be complications. And so I think we would have a big role to fill because there's going to be this huge stigma and doctors are going to be afraid of getting into trouble. And it's going to be this crazy world, which I don't think if it happens will last very long. 
I think it might last a year until people realize how bad it is and the wards fill up with, I mean, see, the thing is it'll never fill up like it did before because now we have mifeprex, you know? Mm -hmm. So women will be self-aborting with medications, not instruments, hopefully. So I don't think they'll see the same complications, but desperation will cause for desperate things and women will do what they need to do. We've certainly seen it now. Mm-hmm. I see plenty of women that have tried it on their own with medicines they've received online mm-hmm. and That's it's failed. Um, and so they come to see us. So even though Dr. Goodrick does have a contingency plan and has thought about what will happen if Roe is further gutted, she, like Eloisa, remains pretty optimistic about at least the way things are going in Arizona. Well, I mean, we have many more Democratic senators and House in our state legislature. So we're really close to getting the legislature, which we haven't been in forever. And we're going to get a lot of the white older men out um, and we're working on it. So 2020, we're also going to get McSally out probably and have two Democratic senators going to Washington. And so we're turning blue. I mean, we're purple now and we're turning totally blue then. The governor, unfortunately, is in until 2022, but hopefully we will turn that around too. You heard from Dr. Goodrick the importance of flipping their state legislature as well as their federal senators and representatives and their governor. I talked with Taylor Tucker of Planned Parenthood about how we can focus our advocacy in Arizona to make change. And she talked specifically about the importance of focusing on those state-level lawmakers. I get that this presidential election is huge. I'm not going to diminish it in any sort of way, shape, or form. But the fights that we can really win are the state fights. Mm -hmm. And so getting involved and paying attention to your local legislators, because they're so much closer and you have so much more access. You know, it's going to be not very probable that you'll ever get to sit next to Donald (laughs) Trump in a room and, and give him a rundown and that he'll feel accountable to you. State legislators, lawmakers, they're down there all the time. They're in their community all the time if they're state and local based. Like you can actually reach them and most of their laws are more likely to impact you. There are lots of ways to get involved with abortion advocacy in Arizona. I talked with Taylor about what she thought would have the most impact. And she had a lot of great things to say about donating to abortion funds in Arizona in order to increase access. People should donate to abortion funds. I think still in Arizona, there is like they just don't get a, a, a ton of funding or there's like not a lot of focus on that. And I think I mean, we, of course, like we'll take your donations. We want you to be active. We want you to volunteer. But I think that one of the things like we are limited in ways as, a, as an institution, as Planned Parenthood, as a licensed, you know, healthcare provider in terms of how we can support our patients. And the reality is, is if you really want to give direct and mutual aid, it's getting connected with those abortion funds so that you can be able to support people's care. Um, I think that we often like shy away from that and want to go to like some of the more glitzy, glamorous sort of things. But really it is providing direct logistical aid. That is kind of one of the biggest points that you know, is needed. And we're trying to figure out how to kind of create a similar sort of thing as a support collective in 
in Tucson, but to kind of spread it up throughout the rest of the state so that people have at least a little bit more support in, in navigating this entire process, especially when it comes to judicial bypass and, and all of that sort of stuff. Because as is true with anything, like most people don't know anything about how many restrictions or how many barriers or how many hoops they need to jump through or anything about, you know, abortion care and their access until they need one or until somebody else they know needs one. It's just true. And I think that we've always seen like, we've just been taught like Roe v. Wade, it's there. It should be this easy. And that's how it should be. But the reality is, is that is not what is reflected in the majority of states and specifically in Arizona. So there you have it. Donate to your local abortion fund. Get involved however you can. This is a fight that's not going away. And even if Roe stays in place exactly as it is, abortion access is very difficult in lots of parts of the country, including Arizona. I'll post links in the show notes to the abortion funds to which you can make a donation if you feel so compelled after listening to this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Music for this episode is provided by David Hyde, and you can find his information in the show notes.